You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Don't mind me. I'm just influencing. Oh, God, now it's playing. This is going great. Okay, let's see. Let's hide this. Okay, there's a whole rant in the book about how I don't, I don't care about dresses with pockets because I feel like it's become this, like, compulsory woman thing to be like, Pockets! And I feel like usually pockets in a dress do nothing. They don't work. They're too saggy and floppy. They're not safe for your valuables. And they're not structured enough for your heavies. But then, and then people are so mad at me about it. And they keep bringing it up. And it is truly... Um, just a troll, really. Like, I have no, like, a good pocket is good and a bad pocket is bad. And I've like, oh, I, I, um, I'm the troll, you know? <laughs> I'm realizing that, like, I just did it to hurt people. <laughs> okay, sorry, just, I can't wear a button down. It doesn't work. Okay. Um, thank you all so much for coming to see me. This is wild. Here we are. Um... I'm so honored. I'm so honored to have you all here. Um, also, I'm wearing um, shorts under this in case anyone gets nervous about my um, ability to keep my clothes in line, which clearly I am failing at in many ways. Um, so thank you so much for coming to see me. Um, my name is Lindy West. I wrote this book. It's called The Witches Are Coming. Um, and unfortunately, it is essays about America. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, even more unfortunately, it is a Trump-era book. I had to say Donald Trump in it like 57,000 times, which I, uh, you know, it it's, feels very vulgar um, to have to do that to you. Um, trigger warning. Uh, and, uh, but I don't know how to write about anything else right now because, you know, everything is, I don't know if you've, maybe you don't know about this, but you know how, like, just, like everything's really bad? <laughs> I hate to break it to you if, you if you've managed to not pay attention, but it's just, like, not that cool out there right now. Um, so I wrote this book. It's, you know, inspired by this, like, really cool rhetorical flourish that the men have developed, um, good for them, um, where, uh, so, so, I mean, well, there's two parts to it. So first of all, for a long, long time, any time a woman was like, had an opinion, or like said something, or did something, or was around, <laughs> or like had success, or, um, you know, uh, made her presence known. <laughs> I mean, basically, uh, men have been calling women witches to uh, discredit us and shut us up for a long time. Like, if you Google, whatever you think of her, if you Google Hillary Clinton witch, 
Google image search. You probably don't even actually have to put which. If you Google image search Hillary Clinton, you're going to get thousands of pictures of her photoshopped to be a witch. So I find it really interesting how the same people who do that stuff, um, when something happens to a man, where a man, for example, the president uh, of the United States, for example, does a crime... And then people are like, well, you're kind of not allowed to do crime. He declares that there's a witch hunt going on. And now he's the witch. And we are the witch hunters. And I feel like that's not fair. I feel like something about that smells bad to me. You know? So I, um, I wrote this column in the New York Times called... Okay, I don't remember exactly, but something like, okay, fine. This is, fine. This is a witch hunt. I'm a witch, and I'm hunting you. (laughs) Which, I don't know why that's controversial, because you said it. You said I'm a witch, and you said I'm witch hunting you. But they don't like it. Um, And so this is a book about that. (laughs) Um, About about, you know, reclaiming space, reclaiming terms that have been used to hurt us, um, you know, insisting on telling the truth in the face of this sort of fire hose of chaos and disinformation coming out of the White House. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's about, um, about telling the truth in regards to this, this moment, the things that have been done to us, the way we've been treated um, in recent memory, and also, you know, the myths that America has has built up about about who we are, you know, these sort of older fantasies of freedom and equality and justice that have simply never been true, but are a part of our identity. And it's about the ways that those are built into the pop culture that we create and that we consume, and um, how important it is going forward to start to break those down if we want to build the kind of world that we all claim to be so invested in. So... Um, but it's also just like a lot of like just like poopy jokes about <laughs> cartoons. <laughs> I mean, like it's I made it sound a lot more dignified than it is um, this book. But I, I, you know, I tried to write something that was funny and was um, really of this moment because I think that this moment can be really isolating and overwhelming. And I hope that people can read this book and laugh um, and feel galvanized and feel a little bit less alone, and hopefully a little bit less mired in despair. So, thanks. You don't have to, I mean, you haven't read it yet. I might have have failed. Um, Don't, it's fine. (laughs) Um, So, let's see. I don't know what kind of crowd this is. Um, Are we, (laughs) are we feeling, (laughs) are we, okay, I've been reading two different chapters on this tour. One of, and I'm going to let you pick. One of them is about, um, uh, sort of show business and um, making uh, my TV show shrill and the ways that um, even when you get to that level of success and you've managed to sort of get your foot in the door and make some real progress in terms of representation, uh, there's, you're still like 
basically where you were when you started. <laughs> like, um, you know, we have so much work to do. And so the, it's sort of a chapter about the, that process and also about how um, visibility and representation are only the first step and they don't actually solve our problems. We have to keep pushing past that. But it's, like, funny, I guess. Um, and then the other chapter that I've been reading is a very angry chapter called um, Ted Bundy Was Not Charming, Are You High? <laughs> I feel like I sold that one way better than the other one, which, which is kind of depressing. This one's a lot about murder, and it's a lot about my obsession with the television show Dateline. So... Wow. Okay, this was a mistake. Stop. No. <laughs> okay, no, stop. This has gone off the rails. I, I revoke your privileges to help me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, let's see. I think I'll read Bundy. I'll read Bundy. It's more, it's like less, um, I don't know. It's good. Okay. Sorry about talk- how many times I say Donald Trump in this chapter and also how much I talk about murdering. Um, This chapter's called Ted Bundy Was Not Charming, Are You High? For as long as I can remember, I've been terrified that a man was going to sneak into my house and murder me. Actually, convinced might be a more accurate word than terrified, but I don't want to say convinced because I am at the same time totally dismissive of the supernatural and extremely superstitious. I don't think jinxing things is real, but I do not jinx things. Why risk it? Just a few weeks ago, I was sitting in my hotel lobby in New York City, reading Jason Manzoukas' Wikipedia entry, and then Jason Manzoukas walked by me. He's a comedian. He's in things you would recognize. I don't know. I don't know. I, don't, I, I got distracted from reading his Wikipedia page, and I never, <laughs> never learned who he is, really. He's on, like, podcasts, and he will be, like, in a movie. You'll, you would, you'd recognize his face. It works. It's fine. It's good. <laughs> it's off to a great start. Um, uh, who knows what's possible? Plus, if you say things such as, I'm convinced I will get serial killed, and then by coincidence you do get serial killed, it becomes a whole thing in your dateline. <laughs> Keith Morrison is like, a beautiful young nymph haunted by visions of being serial killed. But they were only visions, right? Wrong! (laughs) Ruined my own life by writing that entire paragraph in Keith Morrison impression. Thanks to me for that. Um, There's actually more. I'm not going to read it. Um, That's the gist. Three asides on Dateline real quick. One, it was either the husband, the ex-husband, or someone who wanted to fuck her, but she turned, turned him down. Come on. Cops always wanted to be someone's possible ties to the Russian mob because their brother sold someone named Casimir a boat in 1992, and it is never, ever that. It is never a global human trafficking ring. It is also never a satanic cult. Eat it, white guys. You love weird sex murder. Two, the only foolproof way to murder your wife... I hate to share this information, (laughs) and yet I did. I put it in the book. The only foolproof way to murder your wife is to take her hiking and then very gently hip-check her off a cliff. You cannot hip-check her too hard because the scientists can tell the trajectory. 
the scientists always measure. It's really more of a forensic files fact, but um, I got to kind of combine my murder shows. Um, three, all Dateline correspondents are my children, but here is my ranking of them in order of how much I love my children. Keith Morrison, Josh Mankiewicz, rumpled, Andrea Canning, Dennis Murphy. Um, I have to say, it was a little annoying when, in January 2019, everyone on Earth suddenly became Ted Bundy experts because of Netflix's four-part documentary series, Conversations with a Killer, The Ted Bundy Tapes. Like, excuse me, some of us have had the Wikipedia page, List of Serial Killers by Number of Victims, bookmarked since 2006, and it was only published in 2005. Unrelated, but also a hot, hot read, list of fatal bear attacks in North America by decade. (laughs) Something just occurred to me. Do men not spend absolutely every moment of their lives obsessed with the possibility of home invasion? Do they sleep soundly all through the night, even if there is a noise? Do they notice if they get home and the porch light is off, but they are certain they turned the porch light on before they left? Do they think about giving up their lovely house, their porch, their garden for a high-rise apartment because there are fewer points of entry? Do they consider going home from work early because they can't stop wondering if the wooden dowel in the basement window track has somehow come askew? Do they rehearse protocols for which heavy dresser they will shove in front of the bedroom door if they hear someone creaking up the hallway and lie awake at night wondering how thick particle board would need to be to stop bullets? What about particle board, a layer of folded sweaters, and then another piece of particle board with a faux wood grain laminate? How easily and how far can one man shove one door, one fat woman, and one piece of an Ikea bedroom set? Could I survive a jump out of a second-story window? Should I aim for the tree or try to avoid the tree? Do fat people bounce better or hit harder? so dumb. Straight white men love to file serial killers under some darker... Sorry, I'm so sorry to the men. Some of my best friends. Um, Straight white men love to file serial killers under some darker subcategory of white male genius. Ooh, BTK installed security systems so he could disarm them later. Isn't that smart? Gary Ridgway eluded the cops for 20 years Bundy wore a fake cast. Diabolical. No, you dick lickers. They were fucking pathetic, opportunistic incel losers who leveraged the staggering confidence that our society confers upon bare minimum white men in order to get away with obliterating the lives of sexual objects they despised because they could not own them. Genius. Much like Ada Lovelace, the inventor of the fucking computer. It was interesting to observe the renewed national conversation about Bundy in light of another national obsession incubating at the time, the early stirrings of the 2020 presidential campaign. Watching otherwise rational human beings rhapsodize about Bundy's charm and brilliance while furrowing their brows over Elizabeth Warren's dubious likability creates a particularly American kind of whiplash. The prevailing Bundy narrative has always hammered away at how handsome and charismatic he was. But one would think that in 2019, if Me Too brown shirts truly have the death grip on pop culture and justice that the whinging class claims we do, 
someone might have red flagged the canonization of a shitty rapist failure who murdered at least 30 women. Ted Bundy was a mediocre student who no one liked, who failed at everything he ever tried to do, except for exploiting women's socialization as caregivers in order to put them into vulnerable situations so he could take away their one single precious exquisite life. Elizabeth Warren put herself through Rutgers Law School with a toddler at home, held endowed professorships at the University of Pennsylvania School of Law and Harvard Law School, became perhaps the most influential expert on bankruptcy law in the country, has been a U.S. senator since 2012, and is now arguably the most principled and policy-driven candidate in the fight to wrest power from a profligate dictator and lead Americans to help save our dying planet. Ugh, (laughs) off-putting. I hate it when my mommy makes me brush my teeth. Far more likably, Ted Bundy pretended to have a broken arm so he could rape, bludgeon, shoot, and stab women. (sighs) Things that don't make a white man unlikable. Murdering, stealing everyone's money, grabbing women by the pussy, cult leading, making everyone in your cult commit suicide with you, genocide, being a DJ. Things that do make a woman unlikable. Voice, body, hair, shoes, kids, no kids, sex, no sex, money, no money, inhale, exhale, metabolize food, shed skin cells, use muscles to move bones around. Do anything, die. (laughs) Likeability is a con, and we're all falling for it. I watched Netflix and Hulu's dueling documentaries on the social media mega scam Fire Festival. (laughs) Woo! That's that's, this is my crowd, the Fire Festival crowd. Uh, The same week that I got that Bundy documentary in my craw. And look, I am not saying, I am not saying that Fire Festival CEO Billy McFarland is like a serial killer because he lured hundreds of nubile young influencers to a remote island with no food or shelter and then tooted off on a golden jet ski and left them to be eaten by wild pigs. That's what I am not saying. The lawyer says I have to tell you that I am not saying that. I am saying that McFarland is like a serial killer because he is exactly as likable as Ted Bundy, yet somehow I had to watch two entire documentaries about how charming and charismatic he is. I'm sorry. Is everyone on MDMA? And can I please have some? Billy McFarland is the most obvious bumbling con artist dumbass ever birthed by the universe. He's the guy who never helps on the group project. He's the bully's least memorable henchman. He's that kind of American rich kid who doesn't bother to learn more than one vowel. He looks like the producers spread peanut butter on his tongue and then had his audio dubbed by a frat guy halfway through dying of alcohol poisoning. He seems to be, to put it charitably, barely alive? If we're all made of star stuff, he's from the butt part of the star. (laughs) 
sorry to be a mean bitch, but I am so fucking sick, fucking violently ill of having to watch good people be conned by smug simpletons who couldn't beat a dog at Candyland. (laughs) Ted Bundy and Billy McFarland are both more charming than Donald Trump, and that boner prat fought his way into becoming the most powerful man on earth. That guy? That's the guy that brought us down? One malicious side effect of Americans' bootstrap ethos, itself just a massive grift to empower the snickering rich, is that it conditions people to cheer at deregulation, to beg and plead for the removal of consumer protections. We are literally asking to be conned. We are a smorgasbord for the most unscrupulous and the least deserving. The past few decades have been a tug of war over the benefit of the doubt. Black Lives Matter demands that white America adjust its assumptions about the inherent goodness of cops, about who looks like a criminal and who looks like a fine boy having a bad mental health day. Me Too demands that we re-examine what credibility looks like, who gets to define it and meet it out, who gets to stride through the world assuming that they have it. Institutional benefit of the doubt is monstrously powerful. Any lie becomes an incantation, conjuring itself into truth. This is the foundation of Donald Trump's power. I'm the, the least racist person you'll ever meet. I am a handsome law student. The fire Festival is real, and Kendall Jenner will be there. <laughs> to fund fire Festival, Billy McFarland called people on the phone and asked them for millions of dollars, and people were like, "Yeah, OK. <laughs> to not get caught, Ted Bundy just had to exist. Multiple acquaintances reported him based on the police sketch, his brown Volkswagen, and his shitty personality, but cops thought that a handsome, is he? <laughs> law student, he got bored and stopped going, couldn't possibly be a murderer. I mean, you guys, the Michael Scott paper company was just a supply closet filled with cheese balls, and it got a multi-million dollar buyout from Dunder Mifflin. <laughs> Would it kill you guys to say thank you once in a while? <laughs> Men. <sighs> There's a famous moment from the Bundy trial in 1979, a trial in which Bundy disrupted the proceedings repeatedly with outlandish disrespect to the court and to his victims. When Judge Edward D. Cowart of Dade County, Florida, delivered Bundy's death sentence, quote, The court finds that both of these killings were indeed heinous, atrocious, and cruel, and that they were extremely wicked, shockingly evil, vile, and the product of a design to inflict a high degree of pain and utter indifference to human life. This court, independent of but in agreement with the advisory sentence rendered by the jury, does hereby impose the death penalty upon the defendant Theodore Robert Bundy. It is further ordered that on such scheduled date that you be put to death by a current of electricity sufficient to cause your immediate death and such current of electricity shall continue to pass through your body until you are dead. Okay, I don't believe in the death penalty, but otherwise, seems pretty on point. (laughs) Could have maybe just ended there. Gavel, we're done. But the judge decided to talk more. Take care of yourself, young man. I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It is an utter tragedy for this court to see such a total waste of humanity, I think, as I've experienced in this courtroom. 
you're a bright young man. Okay, this is, you're a bright young man. You'd have made a good lawyer. Based on what? You'd have made a good lawyer. And I would have loved to have you practice in front of me. But you went another way, partner. (laughs) This is me reading from the quote. That's not, I didn't, okay. But you you went another way, partner. Okay, I don't feel any animosity toward you. Like... Okay, obviously we live in a broken system. We live in a racist system, a white supremacist system. The justice system is very, very fucked up. I don't think the judges should have... I don't think that the courts should feel emotions, you know what I mean, like toward toward the defendants. I get it. But I don't know that... You got to go out of your way to specify that you don't feel any animosity toward Ted Bundy? Like, you could have just not said anything. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want you to feel... I don't want judges to feel animosity toward people that they're sentencing. But maybe a little for Ted. Just for Ted. Just a little for Ted. Or like... I don't feel any animosity toward you. I want you to know that. Take care of yourself. Okay, so that's what the judge said. Um, and yeah, okay, this was 40 years ago, and um, I'm still mad. I wasn't born yet, but I was angry in heaven, the wherever, the, wait, the waiting area. Um, so to recap, just to recap, we got women. Over here we got women just living life, going to college, having brown hair, swimming, helping the injured. We got Ted Bundy, murders. 30 women, at least, maybe more, because his pee-pee scrunch from being a massive shitty failure. And then we got the legal system. Bungie, you are a great man and a great lawyer and could be our greatest president, if I'm being honest, but unfortunately, I got to sentence you to death on account of all the murder and whatnot. Sorry, buddy. Dang. I wish I could hire you as my son, and heck, you should be doing my job, partner. That seems good. That's good, right? That's good. Um, I wonder how many of the women Bundy murdered would have made good lawyers. I wonder how many female and minority lawyers Judge Cowart mentored in his lifetime. This anecdote is often held up as evidence of Bundy's charisma. Even the judge sentencing him to death was seduced by that smirk, that finger wave. But it is the most blatant, overwhelming evidence we have for the opposite. Men don't need charisma to succeed. It doesn't matter if men are likable because men are people who do things, who don't have to ask first, whose potential has value even after it's squandered. On the other hand, women. Is there such a thing as a likable woman? Can you think of one? And if she exists, Could she be anything but the ultimate manifestation of everything we hate about the water we swim in, everything we're forced to be? Likeability in a sexist, racist culture is not objective. It's compulsory femininity, the gender binary, invisible labor, whiteness, smallness, sweetness. It's letting them do it. If someone is universally likable, I don't trust that person. 
I don't want a candidate that the alt-right likes. I don't want to have anything in common with George Zimmerman. A person's standard of likability is a reflection of his beliefs. And unfortunately, in this country, a whole lot of people believe that Donald Trump is not a racist shart in an eight-foot tie who is unqualified for literally every job except lie down. (laughs) You know, like, it's easy. Like, it's an easy dunk. It's easy to roast Donald Trump and get people to laugh and clap, but I, I, that's why I like it. <laughs> it's cheap, but it feels good. That's okay. Uh, so no, excuse me. We will not play likability anymore. It's an endless runner, a game with no progress and no finish line, that women are expected to chase, that keeps us from doing the real work, accruing the real power. Chasing likability has been one of women's biggest setbacks by design. I don't know that rejecting likability will get us anywhere, but I know that embracing it has gotten us nowhere. Which is something we call a woman who demands the benefit of the doubt, who speaks the truth, who punctures the con. A witch has power, and power in women isn't likable, it's ugly, cartoonish. But to not assert our power, even if we fail, is to let them do it. This new truth-telling, this witchcraft of ours, by definition cannot be likable. We cannot pander or wait for consensus. The world is too big and complicated and rigged. We are saying the things that people don't like. That's the point. Someone will always pop up to say, you would be more effective if you were nicer. You would have a more receptive audience if you adjusted your tone. You catch more flies with honey. Um, Well, I don't want flies. (laughs) The most likable woman in the world is crawling with fucking flies. Thank you. So that's my Bundy rage chapter. You know, growing up in Seattle, Bundy, he's a hometown boy. And you just have to hear about him all the time. He's everywhere. It's like, oh, Ted Bundy murdered someone right there. (laughs) Oh, Ted Bundy worked there in that call center. Ted Bundy was handsome over there. Fucking shut up about Ted fucking Bundy, man. I mean, obviously, I didn't shut up about him for a whole chapter of the book, but... Celebrate New Year's Eve and ring in 2020 with the perfect view at the Commonwealth Club's premier Embarcadero location. As thousands of spectators watch from below, you'll revel in rooftop views of the famous Embarcadero fireworks, indulgent cuisine, high-end spirits, lively entertainment, and the ultimate New Year's Eve experience. Our New Year's Eve party was ranked in the top 10 New Year's Eve parties in San Francisco. So visit our website and reserve your spot today. CommonwealthClub.org You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. So we're going to do questions. We're going to do Q&A. I'm going to A, all your cues. Um, I think, is there a, ro- a roaming microphone? Yes. Um, I want to say 
I'm just gonna give you a warning. There's one kind of question, only one kind of, well, there's, okay. <laughs> I don't wanna say only one kind of question I don't like, let's not. But there is one kind of question that I get a lot that it's not even that I don't like it, it's that I can't do it, which is that I have some sort of brain problem where if you ask me to recall information, such as what's the last book you read, I can't. I, will, I literally won't even be able to remember the name of a single book that's ever been written, even the one that I wrote that's right here. <laughs> like, I don't know. Have you seen that clip from Billy on the Street where he runs up to that girl and he's like, name a woman! And she's like, ah! And he's like, name a woman! And like, that's me. So you can be like, who's your hero? And I'll be like, uh, this bottle? Like, I just, we, we can do it, but it'll just be humiliating for me and unsatisfying for you. I don't know. I literally, I don't know what it is. I cannot do it. Something in me, something in me dies every time. First question down here. Hi. Hi. I've listened to the audiobook one and a half times already. Oh my God. Thank you. Oh, oh it's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I wanted to ask how we can get the non-voters to vote because you're a pop culture icon, and um, I think people would listen to you, but, and you're likable. Oh, my God. Thank you. I know. Someone totally, like, gotcha'd me because they were, like, like in an interview that I did where she was, the, the reporter was, like, you wrote this whole chapter about rejecting likability, but in this other interview, you said, or, like, it's probably in the book, in this other chapter, you said that your goal with Shrill was to create a likable fat character, and I was, like, no. Which is it? Um, and the answer is, like, I don't know. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I mean, I think these are um, conceptual conversations that we need to have, but also I still have to live inside the system where people treat me better if they like me. So what are you going to do? Um, okay, how do we... I mean, again, this is one of those questions where, like, I, if I knew the answer, I would totally tell everyone and do it so that we, everyone would vote. <laughs> Like, I don't know, obviously, I don't, no one knows the, like, some sort of magic um, path to, to getting everyone out and voting, but I, I certainly think that, um, okay, so for me, um, as you'll probably find out during this Q&A, like, I don't have, I'm not an expert in anything, you know, like, I'm not a policy expert, I'm not in academia, I have a bachelor's degree in English, and a bunch of opinions, and I'm, I'm a, I like writing jokes, and so I combine those things into, on my little, this little platform that I have, um, that is, you know, thankfully has been growing over the past few years, and I do have people who listen to me, and, um, uh, you know, I think I have some small skill in communication, and so I use that to say the same things over and over and over in various ways. Sometimes I say them angrily. A lot of the time I try to cloak them in humor and make them palatable. Um, I like, that's my favorite thing probably, is to write something really funny um, that is in itself a piece of entertainment and kind of stuff it with really radical ideas because I think you can get people to swallow challenging things that they otherwise might um, run away from. But um, so I, I don't know. I think just in the last year or so, I've started to get emails from, and this never happened before ever in my career. I started to get emails from people who are like, I was a lifelong Republican. I was raised in a Republican household. I voted for George W. Bush twice. Um, you know, I, I love Mitt Romney or whatever. Um, and then I, and, I, and I started reading your work and I just wanted you to know that like you changed my mind. Which is like, what? 
Um, and all it took was, um, let's see, I started writing in 2005. So all it took was 14 years of, um, you know, being the same person with the same ideals, um, you know, more or less. I've obviously learned a lot in that time. But like really, um, really holding fast to the things that are important to me and, and using my platform and my sphere to say those things over and over and over. You know, there's so much bad faith on the right, I think. Um, and that's why it's so hard to have these conversations because you're not speaking to people who are approaching um, the conversation from an honest place. It's really disingenuous. I mean, you can... Obviously, this is true. This is why the the, fam, the party of family values loves president grabbing by the pussy all of a sudden. It's like it's not it's not a good faith conversation, um, and so I think there and it's so it it can right wing rhetoric can be so inconsistent, especially right now. And I think, I mean, this is just a theory that I have because I'm trying to figure out how I possibly changed anyone's mind <laughs> with my very inflammatory and rude um, um, columns, but. Um, you know, I think there's something really powerful in in showing real dedication and consistency uh, in an idea. You know, um, I think that people look at me and they uh, they they sometimes think because um, I've had I've I've had this happen before too, where there are people who you know used to like make fun of me and troll me on Twitter, and then I just didn't back down and I kept doing the same thing. And then they were eventually like, oh, I guess you really meant it. You know what I mean? And, like, there's something really powerful in that, in, like, realizing that, like, you have to take that a little bit more seriously than if I was just a sort of bloviating pundit, which I obviously am because I've been talking, I've been answering this question for 25 minutes. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, ooh, have I ruined the sound? Did I ruin it? Okay. Um, I also think, sorry, and just as, that was just for me personally how I think about this in my job, but, but to zoom out, you know, I think that um, there's nothing more important than like pushing the Democratic Party to the left. Uh, I think there's a real urge because um, people are freaked out to move center, um, and to, which really results in um, essentially standing for nothing. And yeah, you can't expect people to leave the house and go vote for nothing. <laughs> you know, like, what's nothing? What, like, what's in it for anyone? Um, I think people, people want to believe in something. And want, like, if, you know, people want health care. People want justice. And they want, um, you know, they want to be able to, they want a future. They want the planet to survive. Like, I don't know. Sorry, it's kind of a high-stakes moment. And the right has moved so far right that the center is is uh, it, bizarro world. Like, what is that even? And by the way, anyway, and I'm not, I'm by far the, from, I'm far from the first person to say this, but like, the, there's no middle ground between like <laughs> equality and no, or like racism and no racism. Or like, uh, you know, uh, women have autonomy or don't. There's no compromise. There's no such thing as the center. So I think that, I mean, maybe this is just a wild gamble, but I really think that having some kind of coherent platform that people can actually feel feel something about um, is, 
really worth a try. We could try it one time, guys. Um, and I don't, but I mean, again, like, I don't know. I'm just, a, I'm just some lady. Let's not, you know, people, I, I have opinions and I sort of digest the world and I write it down in my little columns in my book. Um, but par- part of what I'm trying to do is just be a regular person um, processing this moment along with everyone else, you know, because it's, it's wild. <sighs> okay, your next question is going to be over here on your right. So sorry I talked for so long on that one. Pro- maybe, well, whatever. It's, I, I nailed it. It's all good. <laughs> Hi. I wanted to ask you about Shrill. Yes. Hi. And how involved were you with it and how happy were you with the results? <laughs> Um, extremely involved, extremely happy. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's a totally different, um, uh, industry. So, you know, I, I came in, I, I sort of found myself with a television show, suddenly became executive producer of a television show, um, after having worked as a newspaper columnist and an author of books for the past, you know, 15 years. So, um, and it's been since maybe 2009 or 2010 since I actually worked in a newspaper office physically with other human beings. So my career, my job has been very solitary for a long time. And, you know, when, like, obviously I have editors and um, I I do work with people on some level. But, I mean, especially when you're writing a book, like, I got to write it by myself. It's just me and my computer. It's very lonely and sad and gross. Um, because I'm not, I am not like one of those elegant, dignified writers with like a glass of water and a succulent and a desk and a window. I'm like horizontal on the couch and it's 4 a.m. and I have like um, sour gummy worm powder on my face and I'm crying. Um <laughs> Little peek behind the scenes. That's, you know, everything. You know that thing I wrote that you love? <laughs> it was all written like that. Um, also, fun fact, everything I ever wrote that you love, definitely first draft. Because I turned it in 30 seconds before the deadline. <laughs> Not to brag. Um, but, um, uh, so, I, you know, I spent a long time where, you know... Like, the, the, the responsibility to get it done is all me. No one comes to save me. If I fail, if I don't get the book done, I got to give the money back, which is really scary <laughs> um, and very stressful because uh, I need the money um, for, to buy stuff. Um, and, then you, and then moving into TV, you're working with, literally, you're collaborating with teams of hundreds of people. And, you know, first in the writer's room, which is, you know, like I think we've had like seven to ten people uh, each season. And um, uh, you're, you do have to like leave, you absolutely have to leave ego behind because everything is like, everything gets rewritten 4,000 times. So that thing that you loved, that you thought was perfect, is going to get cut 100% of the time, um, 99% of the time. You know, and, and 
but there's something really there's I really love that process. I had such a such a amazing time. Um, you know, not just working in the writers' room, but then you go in and like the writers' room is amazing because. You know, I, I, I think maybe I had a unique experience because I'm sure you could have a horror story in this situation, but um, to me, it's like, it makes it so much richer to have all of these different perspectives informing the story. Um, and, you know, it became clear right away that we're not telling my story. Um, this is not a, bio, a Lindy West biopic, thank God. We're creating a fictional character and giving her a life and um, building a world for her that isn't, you know, some of the storylines are drawn from my life and some of the relationships with the different characters. But, you know, once you have actors involved, they're bringing themselves into the characters. Um, once you have the writer's room, obviously. Um, and then you have the crew, which is hundreds of people. You have an art department. And, the, I mean, the amount of, of um, you know... Um, richness that comes from the art department. Uh, every detail. They think about every detail. They wrote, they wrote whole newspapers full of copy for like the prop newspapers that no one could ever possibly read and I would flip through them and it's not just dummy text, it's articles that someone wrote. I was like, who did this? <laughs> and it's just like so inspiring to be surrounded by people who, who care deeply and are so good at their jobs. Um, it's really, and who also like will catch you if you fuck up. <laughs> like, it's not just like, I'm the only one accountable if this fails. It's like, you're part of a team and, and everyone is, um, is, is working to make something that they really believe in. It was, it's really, really special. You know, like when we shot the pool party episode, like the crew who are these like, you know, like. 40-year-old grizzled crew guys who have been just working in TV forever, they're crying because it was so moving to just be there and that's how much everyone cares. And God, they work so hard. It's like unfathomable to me. Like my job is like sitting in a tent and watching a little screen, watching what they're shooting and like making, making sure that the script is working. And that's all I do. I just sit there. <laughs> sit there in a tent and then there's like men who set up the tent and if we have to change locations they take the tent apart and put it in a truck and drive it and then they reset it up at the next location and I'm always like man if I set up one of those tents one time I'd be like done for the year I'd be like ooh I am amazing <laughs> anyway and then you know to have it come out and, and to see how it how it resonated with people. Um, you know, the same, like, like I always said with Shrill the book, I just wrote the book that I needed to read when I was younger, and um, it's the same with the show. It's a show that I really could have, that would have really changed my life a lot when I was younger, and um, to get to sort of generate that for other people and on a much broader scale than, um, than I could do with Shrill the Book because a lot more people will watch a sitcom than will read like an angry, fat <laughs> manifesto about, you know, periods or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I'm just over the moon about it. And see, we're done with season two. It comes out January 24th. And it's so, it's so good. I'm so excited about it. It's so funny. And it's like it's so sweet and good. I can't wait for you to see it. And we did eight episodes instead of six, which is nice. We have one in the center here. I can't see anything, but I believe that you're there. 
Um, I wasn't expecting to get it, so yay. Uh, I just want to say thank you for all of your work over the years. Um, I've been a big fan. I think I was first exposed to it, um, totally biased with Kamal Bell. Your conversation with Jim Norton was amazing. Um, and I'm wondering, my question is if you could comment or offer any um, insight into what I feel is the crisis of men right now. Um, I feel between you know mass shootings and Me Too and everything else, um, as women, you know, we kind of have to be careful to dance around saying, you know, some of our best friends are men and we still love you and, you know, it's cool, like, we're, you're, you're not one of them, but also, they're all men. <laughs> so I'm just, I'm curious yeah. if you have any insight on that or you could... I mean, also, like, if there's anything that we learned during Me Too, it's like, oh, you might be one of them, you know? It was, like, so bone-chilling, the number of of stories that like exploded all at once. And, um, <sighs> no, I mean, I, you know, um, I don't know that I have anything profound to say or anything new to say, but, um, I think it's really, there's something really heartbreaking about the fact that, that men, um, like don't get to have feelings and have meaningful relationships with, other men and have, you know, that, that, that all they have is like, and I see, and I'm going to do that thing, but obviously I'm speaking in generalities, but I'm talking about the social conditioning in our culture and the way that we, the way that we teach people to process the world, that, that men are pushed toward, toward violence and, um, aggression instead of, you know, getting to actually be tender and be, you know, vulnerable. Um, I think there's, there's something really sad in that. And obviously it manifests in all kinds of really brutal, horrifying ways that I'm not excusing, but, um, you know, it's a tragedy that then ripples out and creates actual tragedies or, you know, um, uh, widespread (laughs) human tragedies. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I think, and again, this is just my, what my instincts tell me. I think that um, it's it's good to resist that kind of thing that I've already now done twice tonight of like, oh, well, not you. You know, um, obviously the dynamics are not the same, but like as a white person uh, trying to be actively um, cogniz- cognizant of and... Um, you know, actively working to dismantle white supremacy and do what I can to repair the, the, um, you know, devastation in, in this country. Uh, it's, it's absolutely necessary for me as a white person to hear the ways that, that whiteness is, um, is violent and, and brutal and absolutely destructive to human life. Um, and to to be somehow buffered from that, to be spared that truth, doesn't do anyone any good. And it certainly doesn't... Um, it, it's sort of... It's not that far off what I just said in this chapter. Like, you, the idea that you can um, nicely ask someone <laughs> to um, give up power or to... Um, admit complicity in 
it's an, a, a centuries-long atrocity um, like racism in America, uh, it's just not realistic. You ha- or that, that you can do any of that work without being honest and without really looking at, at the truth of the problem. So, um, you know, part of what we're asking men to do and not in, you know, not in the way where it's like, because there's this temptation, I think, where people want to constantly, like, self-flagellate in this, like, really tedious <laughs> way of, like, um, and, like, sort of be, like, performatively, um, like, a performatively feminist man. It's like, we don't need you to do that. But you do need to to listen when people are talking about things like toxic masculinity, which, like, People like men absolutely like lose their fucking shit if you say toxic masculinity and flail and scream as though what people are saying is that masculinity itself is inherently toxic when really what you're saying what we're saying is that masculinity doesn't have to be inherently toxic and in fact men too deserve uh, a, a to live a non toxically masculine life <laughs> whatever whatever that looks like so I, I mean I'm just saying like it's um, I think you're right, and I think it is uh, the re- you know the reason that I do that is because it's it you know there is this sort of you well for I mean a, a million reasons like I said like women are socialized to be caregivers and to make sure that everyone's comfortable all the time and especially to take care of men <sighs> and um, you know it it's like it's hard to break out of that and also like I don't want to like alienate my audience. But like I said, you know, um, I should listen to myself, I guess. And, um, because it, yeah, what, what's the benefit? Like what, what's the, what's the advantage of, of softening that truth and of hiding how we really feel about real, the reality of how we've been treated and on a large, on a micro scale and a macro scale. So yeah, I don't know. My answer is, um, that, uh, but I also think that you can have those conversations in a way. You can have them in an angry way, and maybe that's productive. But you can also have them in a in a humane, controlled way without without bending over backwards to spare anyone's feelings. And maybe that's the middle path that is most productive. I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, I just do sort of whatever feels good on the day. <laughs> Our next question is going to be in the very back over here. Hi. I'm curious if you, on the book tour, are having time to watch the impeachment hearings? And if so, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I wish. Uh, I so wish. I mean, uh, I did get to... I watched the very beginning because um, I had, like, a day in Minneapolis. Um, and my mom came from Seattle to Minneapolis because I have a bunch of Midwest family and we converged and had a little family time in the Midwest. And my mom never turns cable news off, so I happened to catch some of the hearings on MSNBC, which I didn't think I was going to have time to see, and um, also because I avoid the news because it, um, it's hell. Um, and uh, so I saw the, like... <laughs> so this was last Thursday. So I saw... Devin Nunez's weird statement, <laughs> which was like, okay, man, that's what you picked. You looked around at all the things that you could be, and you, p- you picked 
like Nazi stooge, like on purpose. That was a wild statement. Um, And I understand now that time has passed and I have done my research that this is a a human being's name and that is nothing to mock. But when he just kept saying Chalupa with no context... I thought I was going to die because I, I thought that he just was confused or that Trump had been talking about his lunch and they, I don't know. So that was good. My best friend uh, from high school, uh, her name is Megan Hatcher Mays and she works for Indivisible and she does a video blog, I don't know what you call it. She does a daily video called Impeachment Daily, where she breaks down like what's happening in the impeachment process, and it is incredible. It's so good. She's so funny, and she's a, a lawyer. Good for her. Um, and she does a really, really good job of like breaking down what's going on, you know, sort of um, digesting the more esoteric, complicated parts of this process, um, and making them you know, understandable and entertaining. So I obviously watch Impeachment Daily every day, and all of you should too. Um, But other than that, I mean, I look forward to catching up on the highlight reels as soon as this tour is done. This will be our last audience question, and it's going to be over here on your right. Thank you. Uh, Lindy, I am a brown girl who is married to a white man, and I'm heading off to see his Republican parents next week. So this right now is feeding my soul, just being (laughs) around you and hearing your... And I have to say, our book club read your book at the beginning, Shrill, at the beginning of the year, and we loved it. I think it completely changed a lot of our perspectives and opened our minds and made us realize some of the unconscious bias we might have. So thank you so much for that. Um, My question to you is, I think you're so funny, and I think your book, when we were reading it, we were like... I feel like I'm talking to a friend. Do you think that um, writing is going to be something that you'd want to do for the rest of your life? Or is there, do you think you'd ever venture into new areas like comedy or anything else? I mean, TV obviously has already been, you've been in the writing side, but like Mindy Kaling was a writer who became an actress and just putting it out there, you know, never stop dreaming. Okay, first of all, this is the great question to end on because it is so nice. It's just compliments to me. Thank you. I love questions that are compliments. Just a pile of compliments for me. Thank you. Um, 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 uh, I, yeah, I think I will, I will keep writing. I will keep writing books and I will keep writing opinion pieces for probably forever. But um, TV is really fun. And I definitely want to stay in, in TV if they'll let me. Um, you know, it's... Uh, and having a successful show on the air really opens a lot of doors. So I, I hopefully am going to be able to make more TV, which is really exciting um, because it, it's... it's Like I said, I already talked for too long about this, but, like, it's a really, really fun medium to work in. I really love it. Um, I, I, ha- I don't know how to act. <laughs> um, and I, the times that I have tried have been very bad. Um, very, very bad. Um, so I don't know that I would, that I'm going to go that road, but I do, like, obviously, um, I don't know if you can, ow, I bit my tongue. So maybe I'm, maybe I should not say what I'm about to say. Um, as you might be able to tell, I do really like talking in front of crowds. Um, like, I like this kind of interaction. I like the energy in a live, of live performance. So, um, you know, who knows, like, I've certainly been thinking about, 
um, bare minimum a podcast, but also maybe like, yeah, right? That's, I should probably have a podcast. Everyone else gets to have a podcast. Why can't I have a podcast? Um, and I don't know, maybe like a one-woman show, maybe some sort of thing where I talk. I don't know. But um, definitely going to keep writing, but I'm certainly open to everything else except acting, which is... I don't understand how people do it. It's the weirdest thing I've ever seen anyone do. The first time AD cried on camera in, during a scene, I was like, <laughs> like, our, like it was like an alien came down from space. And you know what I mean? Like, how did you, what do you do? What? I still find it totally baffling. Um, but uh, anything else, I'm happy to, if anyone's hiring for, um, is anyone here from Hollywood <laughs> that needs a script written for, my fee is a hundred million dollars. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I mean, I feel really, I feel really lucky to have this job that I have. Um, and, and writing, writing books and writing solitary, uh, shit on my couch while horizontal at 7am while crying and eating sour gummy worms will always be my first love. <laughs> And I will never stop. (laughs) So thank you all so much for coming. This was really fun. I love you all very much. And please come see me at the signing table. All right? Take care.